Well, when Fred Savage's grandpa comes over to read him a story in the movie The Princess Bride, he is initially uninterested. It doesn't sound like a very good story, he protests. His grandpa explains that it's actually a wonderful book, uh, filled with romance and sword fights and rodents of unusual size. The boy slowly warms to the book and at the end even suggests that his grandpa come back tomorrow to maybe read it again. Well, perhaps you felt that way when we started reading together the book of Isaiah ten months ago. (laughs) You might have been initially uninterested. I mean, it's a big book of Hebrew poetry. But as we tried to explain, Isaiah is actually a, a wonderful book filled with romance and battles and rodents of unusual size in the form of pagan dictators. Hopefully over the course of our journey, you've actually warmed to the story and maybe you might even want to read it again someday. To be sure though, we're not done with Isaiah quite yet. The book is not shut. Grandpa's not entirely out of the room. We have one more chapter to go and it actually might be the most important chapter in the entire book. Now, of course, if you're just joining us this morning, uh, you are here for the very, very tail end of a 42-week series on the Old Testament book of Isaiah called Isaiah for Today. Joining the series now on this final week might like, feel like sitting down for like the final scene of a Christopher Nolan movie. <laughs> you're going to be like really confused. So if that's the case, let me do my best to fill you in for this last week. Every week, uh, we've been introducing or reintroducing uh, our intro to the book, and and you can probably, for that matter, recite the introduction by heart. In fact, we're going to do that review this morning in a way that allows you, who have been here for a long time, to show off everything you've learned about the book of Isaiah. We're going to do this introduction in a fill-in-the-blank style. So Isaiah is a book in the... Old Testament. He was a prophet who lived in the nation of Judah, eight centuries before Jesus. Uh, Judah was God's chosen people called by God to live holy lives in the promised land of Canaan. <laughs> so far, three out of four. This is, that's 75%. That's a C. That's a C, people. Instead of living lives of holiness, though, Judah practiced the sins of idolatry and immorality. Those are hard. Those are graduate level questions. (laughs) God warned them to stop, but they didn't. So he sent them a prophet named, very good, get you back in the game here, (laughs) to announce their destruction. Sure enough, the nation of Judah was defeated and their temple destroyed by the wicked nation of Babylon. Then the people of Judah were taken into captivity in Babylon for a length of 70 years. The book isn't all judgment, though. It's also a book of hope. Through the prophet, God tells his people that he still has plans to them, plans to bring them back to their capital city of Jerusalem and rebuild their holy temple. But he's going to do it in a different way and on his own timeline. He's going to restore their nation once and for all through a future king. And that's what we're studying in this final mini-series on Isaiah, the future king. Uh, The book contains several prophecies of this future king who will come to rescue God's people once and for all. And we're going to finish our series by studying the most famous and important prophecy in the book in which we read an awful lot about what this future king will come to do. Uh, The passages in chapters 52 and 53, Pastor Jeremy got us going with the first half of the passage last week. And originally I was just going to read you the second 
half of the passage this morning. But for those of you who are just joining us, in order to really appreciate the, the, the whole passage, I want to back up and get a running start and just read to you the whole shebang. It's long, uh, but it's beautiful and important. And reading together, reading scripture together as God's people is probably the most important thing you're going to do all week. So here we go. Isaiah 52. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness, so he will sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see, and what they have not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should even desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain, he bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. By his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death, and was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Now, like I mentioned, this is one of the most important passages in the entire book of Isaiah. And even though it does not officially end the book, the book goes on for a few more chapters, I think it is a fitting place to conclude our study. The poem is rich with meaning. Every verse in these two chapters could be a sermon. In fact, this passage is one of the most quoted passages from the Old Testament in the New Testament. 
Now, we could go into the details of this passage, and we will at least a little bit. But in order to really understand and appreciate the poem, first we need to pull back a little bit and take a look at the big picture. So let's pull the frame out a bit and start at the beginning. And I mean the beginning. You see, when God created the heavens and the earth, his desire was that earth would be a place of peace and joy. And we, and we get a glimpse of God's desire in Genesis, the first book of the Bible, where people are living in cooperative fellowship with God and with each other and even with the animals. And that was the plan all along, a planet of peace. But in addition to giving us the earth, God also gave us freedom to decide how to live our lives. With our God-given freedoms, we decided to follow our own desires. We decided to start satisfying our own appetites. We started mistreating God and ignoring his will for our lives. We became, the Christian word is sinners, who do bad things. And because of our sin, earth never became what God intended it to become. Instead, we became something worse, a planet filled with sin and violence and death. Now, this didn't surprise God, though, and he didn't give up on us. All along, God had a plan. Here was the plan. To rescue the earth from its own corruption, God called a nation into existence. God's plan was to reveal his power and goodness to the world through a nation, through the nation of Israel. He wanted to let the world know that even though all of humanity had given into sin and corruption, even though, as the prophet says, we are all like sheep that have gone astray, God is merciful and forgiving. He doesn't want to just give up on his creation. He just doesn't want to blow up planet Earth. He wants to give us lots of second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth chances if we are willing to repent, if we are willing to be forgiven. And this is what he wanted to show the world through Israel, his holiness and his forgiveness. So here's what he did. He gave Israel a temple where they could offer sacrifices to God. And he gave Israel priests who could make these offerings. And he gave Israel books, books like the book of Leviticus, which explain and contain instructions on how to make these sacrifices. And it was in this temple with these priests by these books that God would accept these sacrifices as sufficient for his people to be forgiven by a holy God. And for centuries, Israel offered sacrifices at their temple. This is how they stayed right with God. That's how they fellowshiped with their creator. But there were always lots of problems with this sacrificial system. What were the problems? Well, for starters, it was so constant, so never-ending. I mean, sacrifices of animals, year after year after year, that's a lot of dead bulls and goats for a lot of sin. How long are we going to have to keep doing this? The Israelites wondered, as did the animals. <laughs> but the biggest problem with this system was that these animal sacrifices never really took care of the problem. Think about it. Humanity has sinned violently against God. People have murdered and killed each other and harmed his earth. How will the sacrifice of a young bull cover up that crime? It can't. It won't. No, the sacrificial system was never intended, actually, to cover up sin. So then what was its purpose? If it couldn't take care of our sin, what was its purpose? The purpose was to reveal the seriousness of our sin. Our sin leads to 
death. Our sin is so serious that death entered the world as a result. And in order for our sin to be forgiven, something must die. Our sin is not a, a minor misdemeanor. It is a capital crime against a holy God. We stand so condemned by God for our sin, that something has to die as a result in order for justice to be met. That's what the Israelites had to come face to face with as they were watching their prized bull be killed on the altar. My sin did that. My sin resulted in that travesty. Now, while the sacrifices revealed our sin, though, they couldn't forgive it. Our sin is too grave. And in this sense, the sacrificial system had another purpose. It pointed Forward, It pointed God's people forward to another sacrifice that needed to be made once and for all, and someday would. Which brings us to Isaiah. The story of Isaiah is that God's people were so evil and corrupt that God punished them through the nation of Babylon. And Babylon destroyed them, carried them into captivity. Following their release from Babylon, though, Israel returned to Jerusalem and they tried to pick up where they left off. They rebuilt the temple. They hired a bunch of new priests. They started their fires. They sharpened their blades. But in his book, Isaiah explains to them, no, 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 this isn't going to work. You're doing the same old thing. Dead animals can't atone for our sins. God knows we need something greater. Well, like what? What do we need? Well, Isaiah says, we need human being. We need a person. But not just any person. We need a man sent by God, a perfect man, to make the perfect sacrifice. And we meet that man in Isaiah 53. He is called the servant of the Lord. We've actually already met him in Isaiah a few times. Now, to be sure, Isaiah never met him. Isaiah was just prophesying his arrival. Isaiah prophesies that he will arrive, this servant of the Lord, as a man of the Spirit. He will arrive as someone to preach the good news to the nations. But Isaiah also says that this man, this servant, will come to do something particular, specific, important. He will come to suffer for our sins. And this is why we see the language of sacrifice all over this chapter that we just read. The Lord makes the servant's life an offering for sin, we read in verse 10. For the transgression of my people, my servant was punished in verse 8. That's all language borrowed from the book of Leviticus. That's what we need, Isaiah says. We need a greater sacrifice. We need a perfect sacrifice. But wait, a greater sacrifice? What, like a, a, a human sacrifice? A human sacrifice? That sounds so violent, so pagan, so backwards. I mean, do we worship a God who really expects a human sacrifice to be appeased. If we found a nation out in the world today that was still sacrificing human beings to satisfy the gods, we'd, we'd think them so uncivilized. We'd think them so barbaric. Is that what we're talking about? A human sacrifice to keep God happy? Well, to be sure, no. This is not that. This is a representative of God offering his own life once and for all to make a just payment for the punishment that we deserve. That's not a pagan human sacrifice. This is God willingly laying down the life of his own willing servant. Eventually we would come to learn his own willing son so that we can be forgiven. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, Isaiah writes. He does that willingly. He takes it upon himself. Now there's lots of crazy ironies in this passage that are just 
tragic here to think about. You might have picked up on them already. First of all, according to what we read in Isaiah 53, the servant is giving up his own life for the people who are killing him. The servant is giving up his life for the people who are taking it. Not to get ahead of ourselves, but it reminds me of a guy who once said of the people killing him, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. And sure enough, the people who take the servant's life in Isaiah 53, they they don't in fact know what they are doing. People who watch the servant suffer, just consider him cursed to be God, to suffer this way. As Isaiah writes in in verse 4, Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. We saw him die, and we just thought, poor fella. He must have really upset God to have to die that way. We didn't know what was going on. But what was really happening is he was being pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Isaiah knew that. We didn't know that. Isaiah knew that. The servant knew that. That's what was really going on. And the sacrifice would even be effective, too. The sacrifice of the suffering servant would work. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. By his wounds we are healed. It would not be like some other animal sacrifice that just delayed punishment. It would bring bring peace. And not only would the servant's sacrifice be effective, but it wouldn't end there. God would accept the servant's sacrifice and then restore him to life. Though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring prolong his days. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. The servant will suffer, but then he will rise and he will see his reward. I will give him a portion among the great, Isaiah writes, because he poured out his life unto death. So this is what Isaiah prophesies here in chapter 53. He prophesies a greater sacrifice who would end all sacrifices. He wrote this prophecy 700 years before Jesus. And for 700 years, nobody really knew what to do with this prophecy. I mean, it's so strange. Besides which, who wants to volunteer for this? Does anybody want to volunteer to be the final sacrifice? Hop up on the altar if you're interested. No? Nobody? No? Anybody? No? Bueller? Bueller? No? Okay, well, then we'll just keep sacrificing cows. Bessie, you're next. Get on up there. That's what they did. 700 more years. But then... A certain man came along, a man who bore a striking resemblance to this mysterious figure in Isaiah. His name was Jesus. And he was a carpenter from a small Jewish town of Nazareth. A little bit more confidence on the place of his origin than his name, but that's... (laughs) Jesus was unremarkable in so many ways. As Jeremy pointed out so well last week, Jesus was an average guy. Jesus was like us. But in so many other ways, he was not average. He was a tremendous preacher. He attracted huge crowds. He loved everybody, including prostitutes. He performed miracles. He attracted just a lot of attention, too much, in fact. Because he was so disruptive, the authorities conspired to kill him. His followers knew that he was in trouble, that he might die. They tried to warn him, but when they tried to warn him, he would surprise them. He'd say, no, 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 this actually needs to happen. This needs to happen so that people can be, confused, or can be uh, forgiven of their sins. They didn't understand what he was talking about. They had forgotten about Isaiah. 
and then he died. A humiliating death, to be sure, on a Roman cross. And then he was buried. But then, strange things started to happen. His followers reported that they began to see him alive again. They found his tomb empty. People started seeing him around. He, he actually appeared to his disciples and gave them further instructions. And then he ascended into heaven. And slowly his followers st- finally started putting things together and, and things that they should have seen before. They finally opened their Bibles. And they realized he was the suffering servant of Isaiah all along. And for centuries, Isaiah's prophecy had just sat there in their Bible, confusing them. But finally, they looked back and they saw it. Finally, they saw what they should have seen all along. It's like they got to the end of an M. Night Shyamalan movie and they realized, oh my gosh, it was there the whole time. How come we didn't see this? They looked back at his life and started making the most fantastic connections that had been prophesied in amazing detail by Isaiah centuries earlier. What do I mean? Well, how did Jesus live? How did he die? What happened to him? He was tortured beyond recognition, as the prophet describes. His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being. He was silent through his trial. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was pierced by a Roman spear on the cross, pierced for our transgressions. He was hung next to two criminals and buried by a rich man. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. And despite his death, he was raised to life again. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. And then he ascended to heaven, to the throne of God. As Isaiah writes, he will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Jesus' followers finally put it together. They realized that what Leviticus anticipated, what Isaiah prophesied, Jesus fulfilled. And that's why Isaiah 53 is so quoted in the Gospels. The writers of the New Testament are practically glowing with the realization that they were in the presence of the suffering servant of Isaiah all along. If you read the Gospels, you'll constantly find the Gospel writer Matthew, for example, saying, this happened to fulfill the word of Isaiah. This happened to fulfill the word of Isaiah. They're glowing with this realization, putting connections together. It was now finally dawning on them that Jesus' death was not an accident. It was the plan of God. It was not meaningless. It wasn't because he was cursed. He was dying for our sins. And Jesus didn't get lucky in the resurrection. It was all part of the plan. Now, why am I telling you this? So what? Well, I'm telling you this for lots of reasons. I'm telling you this to make sure you understand that Jesus has always been the subject of our study on Isaiah. Isaiah 53 doesn't make any sense without Jesus. Isaiah asks questions that only Jesus answers. Isaiah makes prophecies that only Jesus fulfills. Isaiah tells a story that only Jesus concludes. Jesus is the interpretive key to the whole Old Testament. So when, like Fred Savage in The Princess Bride, you decide to sit down and read the book of Isaiah again with your grandpa or without him, look for Jesus. I'm also telling you this to remind you of something else we see in this chapter, that God always has a plan. God began his plan to redeem the world through Jesus before the world even began. Even before things went off the rails in Genesis, he knew what he was going to do. He predicted it through Isaiah 700 years before it happened. He foreshadowed it in the sacrificial system of Leviticus. God had a plan. God always has a plan. So if you're confused about what's going on in your own life 
And whether or not things will ever make sense, you need to know they will. God has a plan. God always has a plan. Whether or not you see it, whether or not you get it, God always has a plan. And down to the details, too. Down to the spears that pierce our side. God has a plan. Might not be a pleasant plan. Might be a painful plan. But he has a plan. I'm telling you this for those reasons. But mostly, I'm telling you this for a much more simple and important reason. I'm telling you this so that you can be forgiven of your sins. That was the purpose of the plan. To forgive you of your sins. You see, you're a sheep. You're a sheep that has gone astray. And not in small ways. We're not like, you know, like slightly off the path. Oh, there's the path. We are in dire straits. We have disobeyed our creator who formed us to live holy, righteous lives of generosity, humility, and service. And we don't. We live selfishly. We live greedily. We live lustfully. We live ignorantly. We live angrily, disobediently, lazily. We have introduced death into the world. We don't deserve to be here. We don't deserve to be part of the renewed creation when God brings heaven to earth. Can you imagine us as we are in the renewed creation? We just muck it up again. We deserve to be removed from creation. We deserve to be punished, obliterated, imprisoned. But God loves us too much to let that happen. He at least wants to give us another chance. So he came to earth as a man to give us a chance to be forgiven and redeemed forever. That's why I'm telling you this, so that you can be forgiven. The most important thing that ever needs to happen in your life is for you to be forgiven of your sins. Maybe you want to be forgiven. Maybe you haven't been forgiven of your sins and you want to be forgiven. Maybe you're wondering, I want to be forgiven, Pastor Matt. I want to be forgiven. What do I do? Where do I go? Well, before we finish with communion this morning, I want to answer that question. And I want to answer that question by telling you a story. It's a story, another story from the Bible, from the book of Acts. Acts, if you don't know, it's a book in the New Testament, which is that part of the Bible that takes place after the Old Testament. You see, in the book of Acts, uh, Jesus has, has just returned to heaven to rule over creation and prepare for his return. He has given his followers instructions on what to do in the interim, and what his followers are to do is this, they are to go into the world and tell the nations about him before he comes back. One of Jesus' followers is a guy named Philip. In Acts chapter 8, Philip is sent by the Holy Spirit down south along a road to Africa. And along the way, he meets a man from Ethiopia, who he finds reading a book. The book of Acts calls him an Ethiopian eunuch. He's a servant in the Ethiopian household. And Philip finds him reading a book. Philip finds him reading the book of Isaiah. The Ethiopian had traveled to Jerusalem to worship and was on his way back home. While in Jerusalem, he had apparently picked up a scroll of Isaiah, the same Isaiah that we have been studying for 42 weeks. Who knows where the Ethiopian picked it up? Maybe he picked it up at the airport in the Hebrew poetry section. So the spirit tells Philip to approach the man's chariot. He sees the man reading the ancient scrolls, and he goes up to the Ethiopian, and Philip asks him this. Philip asks him, do you understand what you're reading? Which is a very helpful question, but it's also kind of brazen, don't you think? A man, imagine being in an airport. You see somebody reading the book. Excuse me, do you get that? Do you understand what you're reading right now? I'm a very good reader. I can help. Luckily, the Ethiopian is helped by this, is not offended by it. In fact, Philip seems to be there at just the right time. Like I said, God has a plan. 
Here's what the Ethiopian says. Well, how can I understand unless someone explains it to me? So it works out well. And the man invites Philip into the chariot so they can study Isaiah together. And Philip notices the passage that the man was reading. It comes from Isaiah 53. This is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. The author says, he was led like a sheep to the slaughter and as a lamb before its shearer is silent. So he did not open his mouth. And then the Ethiopian asks Philip, tell me please, who is the prophet talking about? Who is the prophet talking about in this mysterious passage? And what does Philip do? Philip says, hmm, I'm not sure. Good luck to you. <laughs> no. Acts says this, then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. Philip knew that the book of Isaiah is about Jesus. God had given this man from Ethiopia, the book of Isaiah, so that Philip could teach him about Jesus right when the man was reading Isaiah 53. Philip told the man about Jesus coming to earth, teaching people about God. He told him about performing miracles and getting into fights with religious rulers. He told him about Jesus getting arrested and executed. He told him about Jesus rising from the dead and ascending to heaven. Who knows, he might have even walked him through, verse by verse, Isaiah 53, making all the connections, right down to the spear in his side. And why did these things need to happen? Philip explained that to him too. It needed to happen so that our sins could be forgiven because we all, like sheep, have gone astray. The conversation worked. The Ethiopian was persuaded and responded faster than anybody has ever responded to an invitation. He said he didn't need to think about it, didn't need to mull it, mull it over. Acts says, as they were traveling along the road, they came to some water. And the Ethiopian eunuch said, look, here is water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? He jumped out of the car on the highway <laughs> to get baptized in the pond. He didn't even wait to get where he was going, where they might have had a nice bathtub or something. Didn't wait for baptism Sunday on the fourth week of the month. He said, oh, look, stop the car. There's a pond. Let's go. So Philip did, and as Acts says, when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but he went on his way rejoicing. I mean, what other response is there to being forgiven of your sins forever than rejoicing? I mean, we were destined for hell. We were deserving of nothing but eternal separation from God. But now we've been forgiven. Once and for all, the final sacrifice has been made. What else is there to do except jump in a pond and splash around in celebration? So that's why I'm telling you all this. That's why I've been sending Isaiah, so you can be baptized, so you can be forgiven. We can do it quickly. All we have to do is turn on the faucet. Look, there is a faucet. Why should you not be baptized? And if you've already been forgiven, if you've already been baptized, I'm telling you this again so you can rejoice. The most important thing that has ever needed to happen in your life has actually been done. You, a sinner, have been forgiven. You were a sheep that has gone astray, but you have been found. Now you are a saint. There is nothing between you and eternal life. Nothing is holding you back. Nothing is weighing you down. Imagine the best news that you could ever get. The perfect job, the perfect man, the perfect woman, the perfect house. Imagine the best news you could ever get. Multiply at times a bazillion good Jesus. That has happened to you. You have nothing to look forward to in the new heavens and the new earth except absolute peace and prosperity in the presence of God and his loved ones forever. If you've been forgiven. 
We're going to celebrate communion in a few moments, but first we're just going to sing a song, a song of invitation. It's a song inviting you to do what the Jewish priests did for so long on behalf of the Jews, and that we can do as well. If you're burdened by your sin, if you're overwhelmed by your guilt this morning, if you're oppressed by your problems, we can find grace, we can be forgiven, we can find it as we come to the altar. As priests and people have been doing for generations, we can meet God, we can be forgiven at the altar. So whether you need forgiven for the first time or need forgiveness for the 50 millionth time, come to the altar this morning, come be forgiven by the lamb who was slain once and for all for your sins and for mine.